And so if we're thinking thoughts of, of compassion and generosity and grace and humility and otherness and neighborness and thoughts of, as uh, Dallas Willard so wonderfully taught us, this all-inclusive community of loving persons with God as chief sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. If we're thinking those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of realities begin to show up for us. That was Juanita Rasmus, and this is the Things Above podcast. So my guest today is Juanita Rasmus. She's a pastor, spiritual director, and a contemplative with a passion for seeing people transform into their best selves in our world today. Juanita co-leads the St. John's Church in downtown Houston with her husband, Rudy. It's an amazing church with an incredible story. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And I hope listeners will check out what they've been doing for years at St. John's down in Houston. But Juanita, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm grateful. Well, you know, we go uh, back a long way. I was just guessing in my head, and I'm thinking it was around 20 to 22 years ago. You're right. Wasn't it the, the, the Divine Conspiracy Conference in Houston in like 98? So that was, was it called the Divine? Well, it was the International Conference. Yeah, uh, and it was so on the Divine Conspiracy, right? 98 is when, right, exactly. You're right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and you came to the Renovare ministry team retreat, and that's where I right. first met you. And Yeah. That was amazing. And um, been friends ever since, done a lot exactly. of stuff. Exactly. It's been wonderful. A great journey. It has been. And you know what? Listeners may find this interesting. They may not. I don't know, but I do. <laughs> And that is that you and I are born like only months apart. Right. I'm September 1961 and you are? June the 19th, which for African-Americans is June Oh, right. And that was Juneteenth. the liberation for blacks in Texas. There you go. June That's 19th. right. June. So July, August, September comes me. So you, there the you universe, go. The universe was gifted with Juanita and Jim, two J's. <laughs> hey, <laughs> what can we say? Or we can say two gems. There you go. That's right. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, listeners right away may be interested, because I know my daughter, Hope, is so blown away by you. She's she's one of your biggest fans. Oh, wow. But one of the things that she loves about you and Rudy is that you guys uh, oh, officiated yeah. Jay-Z and Beyonce's wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, Rudy did the officiating. I was just one of the um, guest participants there. It was a very small wedding. Uh, uh, There were only, I think, 11 people there. And it was a wonderful and intimate and very special, very, very special event. It's not everybody that can set up a tent inside of their living room and have a chapel. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, so it was it was yes. a beautiful experience, and I'm 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 grateful that um, they have maintained um, a solid relationship with each other. And you know, Jay Z has talked about having gone to get therapy, and so I'm just grateful that they're they are, as best I can tell, seeking to be authentic in their relationship with one another as as husband and wife and as parents. And my God, what more could we ask for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, oh man, that's amazing. And I know that the, 
Well, and and her mom, Beyonce's mom, Tina, wrote the forward yeah. to your book. Yeah. But also, I mean, the the Beyonce and the other uh, girls in Destiny's a Child, they grew up in your church, right? That's right. Yeah, Kelly Rowland and um, Beyonce both were uh, in our in the church when we started in 1992. Tina was doing my hair, and um, had known Rudy before my husband before we um, got married. And so it just was a natural thing that when we started at St. John's, she decided, hey, I'm, we're going to come go with you guys. We're going to be with you there. And so that was just, it's just been a really beautiful and gracious and loving and generous relationship over these years. Matter of fact, they're doing some incredible work right now. I mean, literally as we speak, helping us to uh, provide services to the many families that are uh, experiencing food insufficiency during this coronavirus 19 mm. experience, COVID-19. I forgot yeah. the name, COVID-19. Yeah. Right. Well, that's amazing. Well, you know, I don't think I've ever asked you this, but did did uh, Beyonce and Kelly ever sing in your church when they were growing oh, up? Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, uh, Beyonce particularly sang in the church choir for a short time. And I say short time because um, for the time that she was at the church, she was a teenager when she was singing in the choir. And shortly after that, Destiny's Child took off. And so needless to say, she was a globetrotter after that. Right. But yeah, she sang in our choir. Matter of fact, um, I would say it could be said that she intimidated the hell out of our choir. <laughs> <laughs> because even at a very young age, this girl had pipes, okay? And <laughs> she has always been incredibly disciplined. You know, there would be times when we were at the hair salon, I was getting my hair done. And she and the group would just break out in a rehearsal in the midst of all the women who are sitting under hair dryers and, and getting their hair washed and quaffed and so forth. And she has just always been an extremely hard worker. So it's not only that she has been gifted, but that she honors her gift and she she hones her gift and she takes it very seriously. Mm. Yeah, well. What an amazing, you know, journey and story it's been, and um, and I'm I'm just so glad that you got connect with that family and they connected with your church because what St. John's is amazing. As I said, I hope uh, listeners will check out all that you guys have been doing through the years. But today, I really want to focus on your book, Thank um, you. your book that's coming out, "Learning to Be: Finding Your Center When the Bottom Falls Out." And Juanita, I got to say this: I said this in my endorsement, but it really was. Um, a book I had difficulty putting down. That's the old cliche, oh. right? You can't put it down. But I mean, the, the the depth, the truth on every page, the honesty, as you write about the crash, we'll talk about that. And certainly I connected with your longing to find your true identity as a child of God. Um, so it's just, there's so much to talk about, but let's just start right, right away with, with something you write on page nine. Um, this is what you wrote. <laughs> Uh, in the church, we're reticent to discuss mental health along with the related spiritual implications. Why? I totally agree um, with that assessment, but why is it that we're reticent to talk about our mental health? You know, I think that's a complex question. I think one reason um, that the church has been reticent to talk about mental health is because often what the church has not understood, it has demonized and it has feared. 
And I think that until we're ready to begin to, if you will, undemonize mental health, we probably won't talk about it. And that's one of the, the impetus for my having written this book, because I feel as though, um, as an example, one of the things that someone said to me or, uh, or got to me, I don't know if they said it to me or maybe they said it to one of my kids, which, you know, sometimes church people will say to your the pastor's child what they don't want to say to the pastor. <laughs> And that is, um, you know, something like, I thought she was a bigger Christian than this. Um, mm. And so we have a lot of mythology around mental illness, and we've not allowed ourselves to get new insight, get new information, and uh, create a different narrative around mental health, um, and especially in the church. Sometimes we... Um, prefer to just, you know, it's sad to say, and, and, and I know this is not every case, but sometimes the church would prefer to just stay ignorant. Don't tell me about it, then I won't have to deal with it, you know. Uh, right. Of course, until it happens in your house, and then the church wants to call you at all hours of the night to say, my son, my daughter, my wife, my husband, I need help, you know. Um, <laughs> and so that's the truth. I, yeah. I just decided, hey, look, I'm going to be butt naked, honest about this experience in hopes that it might just start an invigorating conversation around mental health in the church. Absolutely. Yeah. Once you open the door to that, then it's that's the thing. We won't talk about it. But then when we do, we open up for other people to be connected as well. You, you also write on this, that same page that I just quoted from, you write, it's my hope that telling my story will shed light on the resources available to someone in the aftermath of a mental health diagnosis. And then you go on, even with such a diagnosis, we can learn to live into new realities that bring freedom and may even make learning um, to live with the disaster or d diagnosis worth the descent into hell. Wow, I love that line. Because um, there's, I hear hope, I hear encouragement. But real honesty there, and I and I I love that. I mean, talk about that a bit. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, when I wrote that, one of the things I was thinking about um, when I said we can learn to live into new realities was that my therapist uh, at the time, um, who was an incredible man, his name is Pittman McGee. He lives in Austin, Texas. I'm in Houston, but at the time, he his practice was here in Houston, and Pittman was a retired. Um, Episcopal priest who had become a union analyst and a friend of mine who was a Baptist preacher's wife <laughs> suggested that I talk to Pittman um, when she realized, she said to me, you know, I think you're depressed. And um, so she suggested I see him. Well, I saw him and um, during um, a number of years of seeing him, one day Pittman said to me, you know, you're going to have to live with this for the rest of your life, right? Hmm. And when he said that, I thought, oh my God, you mean I'm going to have to experience, in that moment, I was internalizing what I was actually feeling and thinking that what he was saying to me was that I was going to have to live with what I was feeling for the rest of my life. I came to realize that later what he meant was that I was going to need to learn to live with what I experienced, what I was learning about myself, what I was finding out about myself, what I was finding out about God. 
uh, putting away this childhood narrative that I had made up, as we all tend to do, that I had made up so that I could try to understand the world around me and the challenges that were faced in the community I lived in and in the town I lived in. And so that idea of learning to live uh, really meant take all your good stuff out of this hell hole and use it so that you can live in a way that's life-giving for you. The other part of it about um, the disaster uh, and the, the diagnosis that we end up uh, getting and we descend into hell, it's because the reality is no one else can really tell you how to get out of your dark hole. Um, there are insights that can be given. There's um, certainly medications and, and other kinds of support. But I think for me, uh, when I wrote that, I realized, and this was the revelation came a bit later, I realized that literally I was being given insight into myself that nothing else could have prompted. Because mm. we don't get insight from ourselves when things are going well. We don't get insight from who we really are uh, when, when life is handing out certificates, uh, bonus checks, trophies, and awards. It's when we mm. do make the descent into hell that we come to realize who we really are, what we're really made of, what our character really is like. And in that place, we can then begin to make some new choices about how we live in the world and what kind of freedom and that, for me, was perhaps one of the greatest gifts emerging from that deep depression, realizing I had been given some freedom to make choices that before the crash, I never intellectually, subconsciously knew that I had choices about how I was going to live my life. So, yeah, that's mm. kind of what that's about for me. Oh, that is so good. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. It's the, you know, when things are going well, our successes, we don't often reflect, but it's it's in the the, the struggle, the pain, the suffering, the trauma, whatever. When right. that emerges, then it's like, okay, what's going on here? And so right. sounds like it was for you an opportunity to go find out some things that I, I'm guessing, Juanita, you would now say uh, you'd pay anything to learn what you learned. Oh my gosh, yes. I remember thinking to myself that the, the depression, I, I was diagnosed with a major depressive episode and my grandmother wouldn't have known anything about a DSM-4 and categories of mental illness. She would have said, baby, my sweet baby, you've had a nervous breakdown. Mm. And that's exactly what I felt like. Every nerve in my body, Jim felt like it was being shattered and I could literally feel it. Um, you know, we're energy. And so if you can imagine uh, plugging a card in and uh, to a lamp or to your computer and seeing sparks fly out of it and, and the sense that it's being shorted out, that's how I felt. Mm. Mm. And I, I would always say it was the worst, most damning experience of my life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything mm. based on what I learned. Yeah. You know, Juanita, I, I think it was at one of the apprentice gatherings when you first shared that I had heard you'd shared with, with me and actually from the stage, what I think, what you call in the book, the crash, but 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it, just describe our, to our listeners what that experience was like. Let's talk a little bit about the crash, if you're okay with that. Sure, absolutely. What I call the crash was really, it was a day, but really it was a lifetime that led to that day. It was a lifetime of beliefs and and ways of being in the world that weren't my authentic self. But in terms of physicality, that morning I got up, I prepared breakfast like I always did for my family. Uh, We had a busy young family. Uh, Our daughters at that point were uh, in their beginning years at middle school and the church was growing by 500 members a year. And at that point we were up up to about 3,000 members and so breakfast really was the only meal that as the uh, four Rasmuses, we would be able to enjoy together. And so I had prepared breakfast. We ate. Uh, Rudy offered to take the girls to school. And so I hugged them all, kissed them all goodbye, and, and went to the bathroom to finish putting on my makeup. Well, when I got in the restroom, I was putting on my mascara. And all of a sudden, I just felt like I had been hit by a Mack truck. I thought, well, maybe it that I've been moving so fast this morning and um, maybe I should just lay down and and just kind of take a little time for myself and and then go into the office later. So I called our secretary at the time and I said, hey, I'm not feeling well, but I think that maybe if I just lay down for a a little bit, um, I could come in around noon. Would you reschedule my appointments for me? And so she said she would. And fortunately, it was early. It was like, you know, 630, 7 o'clock in the morning. And so I laid down in bed and excuse me, before I laid down in bed, I I literally had what I've heard people describe as like an outer body experience. I saw myself, Jim, pick up the phone, hit redial. This was a home phone. So obviously the redial uh, was old school stuff. I picked up the phone, hit redial, and I just mumbled. I'm not coming back. I, I don't know what, what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to take a sabbatical or a medical leave or something. And I hung up the phone. I got in bed and I could not get out of bed for months. What I felt was this sense of being exhausted beyond anything I had ever known. I slept 18 to 20 hours every day. I was doing good if I could wake up when the girls came home from school and just say hello, and then just turn over on the other side of the bed and go back to sleep. What I realized was that, and it was just really my husband after about a week or so, he said, baby, I think something's wrong. Um, and I think we we may need to look at talking to a psychiatrist. And so I said, okay, sure. You know, at that point, I, I it didn't matter to me who we talked to. Um, and so we arranged for me to meet with a psychiatrist and she couldn't see me right away, but she said that she would call as soon as she got an opening. And so uh, that was on August the 27th when the, the day of the crash. And then on September the 15th is when I was able to see her. And it felt to me like torture, having to wait what felt like forever mm to be able to see the psychiatrist and hopefully have someone tell me what was going on, what was happening with me. Um, I realized that I was experiencing dehydration because I was so exhausted. I didn't want to go to the restroom. And so I just stopped drinking and 
So when I went to see her, she said, I want you to get a complete checkup. And so I want them to draw blood. I want to make sure we rule out all biological um, implications of what might be happening with you. And so I did that. Um, and then I think, um, I can't remember if it was the same visit or the next visit, uh, we, we began to discuss medications. And that's when she diagnosed me with having had a major depressive episode. I couldn't read. I couldn't focus. I couldn't um, get out of bed. And then daily, on top of those symptoms, every time I fell asleep, I would experience this feeling of falling spiraling down into a deep pit and I would never hit the bottom. And so I would wake up and it would start all over again when I'd go back to sleep. And so I just kept remembering, thinking, God, could you just please let me hit the bottom? And and the reason I, I, I think that I consciously even knew to think that was because I'd been around the recovering community. And they often say, until you hit bottom, you can't start your recovery. And so I kept thinking, okay, well, maybe this is something like that. And if I could just hit bottom, if I could feel this bottom sensation, uh, maybe then I could begin some kind of recovery. Um, but it was, it was the most devastating thing I've ever experienced in my life. Hmm. Wow. And this one of you said 18, 12 to 18 months? No, 12 to 18 hours of sleeping. Oh, that, I'm sorry. A day. Yeah. Okay, no, yeah. no, no, no. Uh, sometimes it was 20 it... hours. Okay. But it did last about 18 months. It wasn't that intense the whole time. The right. intensity was probably for about 90 days, maybe mm. even a little longer. Um, but it was something else. Mm. Wow. Um, and then the only sense of hope I had was when my psychiatrist said to me, now it's going to take about six weeks before we recognize or you're able to see any shift um, because of the medicine kicking in. Mm. And when she said it, I thought she might as well have said six years because days felt endless to me. Uh, but I was grateful that when the six weeks did come, there was some lightening of the symptoms. I will not say that I felt 100% because I didn't. It would take literally about two years for me to feel, quote, 100%. Hmm. Yeah. And that was with medication support. That was with seeing a therapist and, and seeing my psychiatrist. You know, after the initial times, you 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 typically only see your psychiatrist once a month for medication checks. And it's your therapist, your psychotherapist, who actually helps you to do the mental and emotional work of recovery. Yeah. So you began to get some healing and through, all, as you mentioned, the medications and great therapists and, and a, lot, a lot of things were going on. But also in the book, you talk about you began to kind of discover yourself in a new way. Um, you know, chapter yeah. one is, is titled, uh, who am I? And yes. on page 14, you write this. Um, and I love this because on this podcast, the, the things above, we talk a lot about narrative, about our thoughts, the power of story, but you said this, or you asked this question, what story have you been telling yourself in, yeah. in your own journey? What, what did you discover? And, and you, you mean, you chose that opening chapter too to address that question, who am I? Um, 
what is it about the importance of the story that we live into? And what did you learn yourself in that? Wow, I learned so much. So I mentioned that Thomas Merton says we create a childhood happiness program. And it's our way of trying to figure out how to be in the world. And so for me, my story was based on being a good little girl and wanting to follow the rules and to be perfect. And um, and so that translated as an adult wanting to be a perfect mom, a perfect wife, a perfect pastor, a perfect daughter, and all those kinds of perfect, meaning um, that no one would be able to judge me inadequate or inappropriate or, and so it meant uh, following a lot of rules. And these rules for me really started in childhood. Um, When I realized that as a child, um, that there was certain behavior that adults valued, and especially in classrooms, there were certain ways of responding to teachers that would allow you to be the teacher's pet and you would get special privileges and you would um, have a sense of being, in my case, I internalized it as loved. And so for me, part of the reality was realizing that I had been living under a narrative that no longer served me. Um, It was sucking the life out of me as a matter of fact. And so the crash gave me an opportunity. I always refer to Humpty Dumpty. It was like Humpty Dumpty sitting on that wall and having that great fall. And it says that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And I was Humpty and I was really grateful Mm. that they couldn't put me together again because they would just try to make me the old me. Mm. And the old me is what had gotten me crashed in the first place. Wow. That's so insightful. Yeah. And so, you know, I think too, Juanita, when we've talked, you and I have talked in the past about Enneagram, we talk about Enneagram on this podcast. I had Chris Hewitt's on, Sacred Enneagram, that book. And so, I mean, I've delved into that, but I, I, I think that pretty much every type is trying to find their value and affirmation. Like what's my, my value in the world. Right. And so as a one, keeping those rules, man, being perfect for a two, it's serving others for three, which is what I am. It's like, I will achieve, I will accomplish. And then you'll love me. Um, so, so when you, I mean, it sounds like that when you had the, the great fall, the crash, it was like, Hey, I can now figure out what is it that got me here? And what got you there was some of those narratives about perfection. I I love, I love that you talked about uh, the Proverbs 31, 31 woman messed you up, which yes. <laughs> I love that. Cause that's that yeah. for those listeners who may not know in Proverbs 31, it describes this idyllic woman. Who's the great mom, the great wife, the great, everything, this perfect person, yeah. um, yeah. which, you know, I don't think the writer of Proverbs meant to mess a lot of people up, but, <laughs> but it does in some ways. Um, sure. yeah. And, and in chapter seven, you write about, and you, you touched on it already, these, these limited childhood programs that they tell us this is what you need to be right in order to get the affirmation for me as an Enneagram three, I can look back and go, I got such affirmation for accomplishment, for achievement. For me, it was athletics. And when my, I just watched my parents light up and I got, I got the blue ribbons literally right Right. from sports. Um, And so that was like a childhood program for me, but you talk about how these childhood programs can be hellish or they can help us to transform. And 
what helped you kind of transform through that once once Humpty had the great fall and you said, <laughs> let's put this back together, but not what I was. Right. How, describe how that was for you. So in many ways, what happened for me, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this kind of by going through a back door. I remember asking my psychiatrist years after this experience, why wasn't I hospitalized? Um, because in having talked to other people who've had a similar experience, many of them were hospitalized. And she told me, she said, Juanita, you had a family that loved and supported you and cared for you. And really all you needed was space. And they gave you that. Hmm. Because every day my husband and my daughters left the house. So in essence, what I experienced was silence and solitude. And it was in the silence and it was in the solitude that the Holy Spirit would ask me questions. And one of those questions was, who are you? Hmm. You know, it's amazing to me. I, I talk again about the childhood happiness project, projects and programs that we create for ourselves, our childhood narrative. Nobody ever says, okay, so who are you now? Now that you're 20, who are you now? That's your 25. Who are you now that you're 35? Who are you now that you're 50 or 70 or 80? Nobody ever asks us that question. And so the reality is, unless some devastating experience occurs, we never question ourselves as to who we are beyond our doing, our achieving, our building, our providing, our serving, our leading, our directing, our creating. And so for me, when the spirit said, who are you? I almost wanted to laugh. Well, if you don't know who I am and I don't know who I am, we've got a problem here, you know? <laughs> but the reality it was, it was such a penetrating question. I knew that I would need to sit with it, to just see how God would reveal to me the answer to that question. And so it started with God saying to me that I am. So who am I? I am. I just am. I don't have to be I am with something attached to it. I am as in I am alive I am present. I am in this space. And it was like God was just in a very childlike way guiding me to build a self, to build a knowing about the fact that I am loved by God as the foundation of my being. You know, Jim, I'm sure you have seen those lists that talk about who we are in Christ, right? I'm a conqueror. I'm more than a, a, a survivor. I am, I'm an overcomer. I'm a child of God. I'm the, the, and it goes on and on. And then it gives you the references to where you can find the scriptures that support that list. I would, I would pass that list out to people in Bible study and new members orientation and all kinds of stuff. And I would give people that list and that list never resonated with me. Hmm. It might as well have been a telephone book with a bunch of phone numbers and names on it. And so in this space of this solitude and silence, being at home every day, God began, and it wasn't even really so much with words. It was with sensations, if you will. It was with awarenesses. 
to just help me to know that beyond any role I played, any endeavor I engaged, that I was, I am. And I remember him because God and I communicate sometimes in funny ways. And so he said, think of it this way, Juanita. 70,000 sperm lined up at the gate to start the race. And you're the one that made it. (laughs) You just are. You are. And to know that in that I am, that God dwells in that. Yeah. And to know that in that there is pure love. And see, I had never known pure love of God. I had never known. I'd always heard God loves me. And I've told other people that God loves you. Well, see, now I was starting to experience what it was to have my being anchored in the reality of God. Yeah. Instead of the other realities I had been anchored in, the realities of doing and serving and leading and teaching those other kinds of performance oriented and rule uh, constricted ways of being. Mm. And so for me, that was a great awareness to find out that I am rooted in God. Wow. That's so powerful. So Juanita, uh, chapter eight is about anger. And I love the title, What's Anger Got to Do With It? Which I think is a nod to Tina Turner, right? It is. Indeed it is. What's that got to do with it? There we go. But you write uh, in that chapter, I came to see that an aspect of my depression was also the result of years of anger uh, stuffed and turned inward, ignored or swept under the rug for the sake of politeness. Yeah. So what role does anger play in all this? And what did you learn about anger uh, that connects with depression? Well, I learned a lot, but let me tell you, one of the first things, one of my, um, I can't remember if it was my psychiatrist or my therapist said, but they said to me, you do realize that depression is anger turned inward. I had no clue um, that there are two ways of processing anger, basically. One is that people explode and they put it out. They get it out of themselves. Other people, and particularly we mentioned the Enneagram, ones on the Enneagram, um, some writers say are particularly susceptible to depression because they tend to um, turn the anger inward and we stuff it, we push it away um, like the leftovers you get from a great meal and you push them uh, into the refrigerator and then before long they become a science project and you've forgotten that they were in there and then you start to smell something and you know how that goes, right? So with the the situation with anger, um, I was told that basically I had made a habit of stuffing my anger. And then it started to make sense to me because good little girls don't get angry. Good little boys don't get angry. It's not acceptable. It's not uh, validated. It's not valued. You don't get check pluses and A's for uh, good attitudes when you get angry. And so what I realized is that I had stuffed my anger. Um, and the product, the story of the prodigal son became a, a, a cathartic kind of passage for me because it helped me to realize that I had stuffed anger and resentment. And so that text became a way of me 
um, seeing myself and seeing my process. And it helped me come to uh, even claim and identify that, yeah, I was angry. I was angry because of the effort it took to be a good little girl in hopes that somebody would notice. Mm. Mm. That is so good. And such an important point, you know, I mean, and, and as you said, no one told you that, but it is sort of a basic truism that depression is anger toward turned inward. Right. Um, and, and, and the effects of it are everywhere, but it sounds like you really learned how to understand it. And then you can begin to realize this is what I'm, I'm upset about this. In your case, it was, I have to be perfect. That's hard to carry. I mean, that's, that's tough to carry. Yeah. And that's a part of the whole healing process is figuring out what is that thing. And it's going to be different for different people. But I have to ask this, just, this is a bit of a, a bit of a turn in our discussion, but skydiving, I mean, <laughs> yes. I got to that chapter and I went, oh, no, she didn't. Yes, she, she didn't. did. Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, I, I'm never doing it, Juanita, and unless oh you can somehow God. can talk me into it. When you write about it, it sounds amazing. But tell us what, what, what drove you to want to do that? And So one of, the, one of the things that happened for me is that I think this was almost, if it wasn't my first visit with my psychiatrist, it was probably my second visit. One day she just turned and looked at me and she said, so what do you want? What do you want? And I I, I talk about it in the book and I said, it was almost as though she had said, um, where's your wallet? And I started looking going, where is my wallet? I don't know, did I not bring my wallet in here? It, it felt so foreign for somebody to ask me what I wanted. And for me, and really, I take that back. My husband from time to time has asked me, what do you want? What would you like to do? But what I meant was it felt foreign for me to think about what I wanted because there was always a demand. There was always a need to be met. There was always a role to be played. And so uh, it was It was like, I don't know if you remember in Chuck E. Cheese's, they used to have this game where you pick up a hammer and you keep knocking the monkeys back in, or I think they're moles. <laughs> moles. You knock the mole back yeah. into the little hole that they're in. And so I felt like my life really was about keeping those moles knocked into their holes, right? And so I left her office thinking to myself, what do I want? I had never thought about what I wanted as the quality, as the texture, as the flavor, as the flow, as the the essence of my life. And so when I got home, it came to me, and I give the credit to the spirit to that I was to take a file folder and on it label it want to. And so I did. I labeled want to. And then I took that file and every time I saw a word or an image, a picture, something that seemed to um, resonate with me because I was still very numb emotionally. So I wasn't laughing. Nothing um, really affected me in terms of my affect. It was very flat. Um, And so when I saw a picture and I thought, well, you know, there's something about this that appeals to me, I'd drop it in the want to folder. 
And so one of the things that I dropped in the want to folder was a picture of somebody skydiving. And this, I later realized, had been a childhood desire where I had gotten this idea is beyond me, other than I just used to like to jump out of my grandmother's tree or jump off of her front porch or jump off of anything that was taller than me that I could jump off of. But her word to me was always, Juanita, don't do that. You're going to fall and break your neck. Hmm. And so somehow from childhood and a caring, loving grandmother who didn't want me harmed, I put aside this notion. When I saw the picture of the skydiver, something in me said, yes. And a few years later, I think it was about three years later, one day, and I was much better at that point, I was walking the labyrinth, and when I got to the middle of the labyrinth, the spirit said, go skydiving. Mm. I was elated. I can't even tell you how I felt. I thought I was going to start levitating any moment. I was so happy. I was so uh, turned on by life in that moment and so grateful because God was giving me permission to do something that I really wanted to do, that I longed to do and had forgotten about my longing. You see, Jim, part of what happens in our life sometimes is other priorities cast our longings aside and we forget we even longed for anything different. Mm. So my want to file became the place that reminded me and encouraged me even in some cases to long for things. And so I came home that day and I, uh, my husband said to me, how was your walk at the labyrinth? And I said, oh, it's great. And he was all loving and huggy, huggy, huggy. And, you know, and I said, um, he said, so did you hear anything while you were at the labyrinth? And I said, yeah, the Lord told me to go skydiving. And he looked at me like I was lying. Why would you lie on God like that? Matter of fact, he said that. Why would you lie on God? Why would you say something like that? He became, he went from this lovey-dovey husband to this, I can't believe you would do something like that. Why would you say God said that? And on and on he went. And I just said, God, look, you and Rudy work it out. I think it's enough that you said that I could go. But if Rudy doesn't want me to go, I won't go. By the end of that Monday was our off day. I was exhausted almost from hearing him rant about this throughout the day. He would let it die down. Then he'd start the conversation again. And I just had decided I'm not in this conversation. I heard this word from God. I'm okay with hearing it and not doing it if you don't want me to do it. But we're not going to, I'm not going to discuss this because this is really about something with you, which later on I found out it was. It was about his fear, which went right back to my grandmother's fear, her fear of me not wanting of not wanting me to hurt myself by jumping off the trees and the things, her porch and so forth. And so one of the learnings for me is that sometimes I want to scare other people, but we right. have to decide if this want to is one that would bring us a matter of a measure of satisfaction, a measure of fulfillment, a measure of joy or hope or contentment or elation and dare I say the word pleasure 
Yeah. And so at the end of that Monday, my husband said to me, I don't want you to do this, but if you feel this is something you have to do for you, then do it. Just don't do it when I'm in town. And fortunately, <laughs> he was leaving town the next day. And so that next morning, I called my sister and I said, would you like to go skydiving with me? My troop. And so that day we went skydiving. And to this day, my husband has not watched the video. And he knows I survived. I mean, my God, I'm here, right? But he will not watch that video. Well, I got to see it now. You got to send a link or something. I'll, I'll see if I can. It should still be out there somewhere. You know, we've moved since then, so I hope I still have it. But I have pictures. I can send you a picture. Send me a picture. That will I'll do. Maybe we'll put that on, on the website. Juanita oh, by all means. I'll send it when we get off the off okay. of our time together. That's <laughs> okay, good. That's good. Well, but I got to say this want to piece is very important, Jim. Yeah. You see, what I came to realize is that God wanted me to have fun. I had never believed that. Mm. I had never believed that God was okay with me having an adventure, that God was okay with me tapping into the wild side, if you will. Um, and for me, that was wild side stuff, you know? But what I found out when I jumped out of that plane, we, we had to do, I think it was four hours of a class, and then you jump tandem with an instructor. First of all, jumping out of a plane is not what most people think. They tend to want to associate it with riding in a roller coaster, and it's not like that. When you jump out, it's like a feather being dropped uh, from the sky. It just kind of glides. And then when the you open the parachute, there's a feeling that comes with that. But it's, for me, it was just delight. I mean, it was just a, a amazing. I was blown away by the experience. And I've spoken to pilots who are skydivers or have jumped from planes. And there's a definitive line, those who love it like I did, and those who don't care if they ever do it again. So apparently there are two specific groups you fall into. But I, I say the, the necessity of a want to, and not just some want tos. What, what do you want in your relationship area of your life? What do you want in time and money freedom aspect of your life? What do you want in your vocation, your vocari? What do you want in your health and well-being? Want-tos, desires, longings, because God is in the longing. I didn't know that until mm. I jumped from that plane. Mm. It's so good. Well, you know, that goes back to fourth century. St. Augustine said we are creatures of desire and they can get disordered, right? To be sure. Yeah, but uh, but to, to, to suppress them, which you're right, there is that Christian narrative. I remember, I think it was, I heard some woman in my church one day, she was talking about something. She's like, and we had such fun. God forgive us. And I thought, oh wait God. a minute, what? And they weren't like doing something bad. It was like, right, but there's right. that narrative. Like if, even right. if I have fun, it probably God wasn't real happy. So thanks for sharing that story, because that is, we need to re be reminded that God, I think God just rejoices in our joy. And yes. yeah. what, you know, you talk about toward the end of the book, and of course it connects with, with what we try to do with this podcast, because it's called Things Above, and we talk about our thoughts. But you write, our thoughts make for the engine of every life. I'm going to steal that one and use that as a tagline, because that's so good, thoughts being the engine of our life. Why are our thoughts so powerful in your opinion? Oh my gosh. 
I know it's a big one. <laughs> Everything that is manifested is manifested out of thinking stuff, this thinking stuff. And for a moment, let me um, say that God is the master thinking stuff, okay? But we are also human beings with thinking stuff. And it's our thinking stuff along with our feeling stuff that often manifest our life stuff. It's been said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, the scripture says. And then there's a lovely little book written by James Allen, and it says, as a man thinketh. And in it, he talks about how our thoughts are the two by fours of our life. And so if we're thinking thoughts of, of compassion and generosity and grace and humility and otherness and neighborness and thoughts of, um, as uh, Dallas Willard so wonderfully taught us, this all-inclusive community of loving persons with God as chief sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. If we're thinking those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of realities begin to show up for us. And likewise, those kinds of thoughts spiral us up towards, if you've ever seen the map of consciousness by Dr. David Hawkins, he's a PhD and a physician, and he talks about how our energy and our thoughts can be measured on a line of frequency. Those kinds of thoughts, willingness, optimism, those thoughts are spiraling up thoughts. And they are the kinds of thoughts that move us into spaces of miracles and the miraculous. And uh, they move us into the places that the Buddha called enlightenment. They move us into the mind of Christ. But there are other thoughts also, those thoughts that are downward thoughts those thoughts of shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and worry and, and um, despondency and apathy, those are spiraling down thoughts. And those thoughts create an energy force in the mind of the person thinking them that make them more susceptible to illness, disease, sickness, uh, accidents, um, uh, life stuff that's not life-giving. And so I realized that my thoughts... And one of the thoughts that had been running my life that I didn't even know where this thought had come from, and the thought had been, once I get everybody else okay, then I can fall apart. Cancel, cancel. The reason mm -hmm. I say cancel, cancel is because I want my subconscious to know I'm not thinking that thought anymore. Mm. The Enneagram talks about the fact that there are certain kinds of thoughts that each of our numbers tend to ruminate on. And so what I'm recognizing is that I must take authority and I've been given authority to take action over my thoughts. And so I can now affirm um, that I can make mistakes without condemning myself, that I can affirm that I can have my feelings and that my feelings are legitimate, whatever they are. And I can be with my feelings. I have a right to feel them. I don't have to operate out of them, but I can be aware of them. I can notice them. I can pay attention to what the feeling wants to offer. And then I can let it go if I want. My thoughts 
uh, are now of the fact that I can affirm that I can treat others with tenderness and respect, that I don't have to judge people because ones are known for judges. We would have made great Pharisees. <laughs> I can now affirm that I can be gentle and forgiving with myself. I can affirm that I can be compassionate with myself and I can forgive myself. So our thoughts are the basis. They are the building blocks of the life we'll live. And we get to choose. We get to choose our building materials. The challenge is, is that most of us don't recognize that we have chosen our own building materials. Mm. That is so good, Juanita. Well, right there. I mean, we're just going to take what you said, and that will be the entire reason this podcast exists, which is to set our minds on things above, on these kinds of yeah. truths. Um, you know, how we, I mean, it's why I started the podcast really was just, I knew the importance of everything you just said and said it better than I've been able to say, I know for two years on this podcast, but that is exactly what it is. I mean, they, they drive, they, they, as Dallas would often say, you know, we live at the mercy of our ideas. They, they run our lives. They can ruin yes. our lives. They can build our lives. I love that stuff about the energy of thoughts. And you, you say in that chapter, there are three that you thoughts that you cite. One is I love and accept and approve of myself. Yes. The other one is I trust the process of life. Yes. And the third one is I am safe, yes. which, you know, that resonates with the two power narratives I talk about on this podcast a lot, which are I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And the other one is, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. So our listeners are like, Jim says those all the time. Yes. <laughs> but those are the kind of powerful truths, those building blocks that they just have energy, man. They have yeah, life. Absolutely. They they move us because they're true. And I often yes, say those yes. those thoughts are beautiful and they're good and they're true. Yes. And and that's what makes a beautiful, good and true life as well. Um, but, you know, also you talk about, and I really appreciated this because it was another aspect of the honesty of your book, but you also talk about relapse and you talk about uh, I'm just going to quote you because you say it better than I can summarize, but you write, my ego was all too eager to get me back into the ruts uh, created in my mind over a lifetime. Relapse comes from feeling so much better that you actually mistakenly believe you're no longer needing the medication. The ego wow. and the desire to be normal and to return to our old self is a tape that plays so doggone loud that we find ourselves acquiescing, that's a great word, acquiescing to the need to get on with life. The yeah. question I ask myself is, which life? And then you point out that the last letters in familiar are liar, right? right? So there is that, you know, that pull that goes back to those old tapes, those old narratives. Um, how were you able to kind of push through? I mean, you, you just, you illustrated earlier when you said, what did you say, cancel? Like cancel? Yeah, cancel, cancel. My dad taught me that as a kid, that when you think a thought that you really don't want activated in your life, um, and say, cancel, cancel, and then state the new thought that you want to have. Mm, I like that. Yeah. So that's a way, because th there is that pull right back into the, right. that's how ruts work, right? They, those yeah, grooves exactly. in our mind. Yeah. We're laying down these tracks all the time in our mind by what we say and what we think. Yeah, absolutely. Juanita, it has been so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Jim. What a joy. How fun. And I'm so excited for people to get your book. I mean, Learning to Be, again, is the name of the book. Finding Your Center When the Bottom Falls Out. It's Juanita Rasmus, Learning to Be. 
you got to get the book and read it. Uh, there's so much uh, in there. And I hope that this conversation encouraged people to do that. I know I'm encouraged to go back and read it again. Third time. Oh my gosh. So Jim, thank yeah. you. Good stuff. Great wow. stuff. And you know, the universe brought you and me into the world within the same, you know, three months. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a good thing that we, as you said earlier, we, we, we am, yeah. <laughs> right? I am, you am, I am, we am. Yeah. Uh, we came in and that's a good thing in itself. So Indeed. blessings on you and Rudy and, and, and the work you're doing. It's so good. Thank and you. And we'll probably see each other again when this thing passes. We can exactly. be together face to face again. But until and we're going to hug real We tight, are. Okay? That's right. <laughs> Aren't we going to appreciate those hugs more now? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Indeed. All right. Blessings. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Juanita Rasmus. I know I did. It's always a blessing for me to spend any time with Juanita. She's amazing. Well, I hope you'll join me next week for episode 78. Until then, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>